Welcome to Delisters of History, the podcast about people you probably didn't learn about in school. My name is Fega, and I actually didn't think of something ahead of time. I've, <laughs> I've been doing so well. Um, I'm your <laughs> history person who's had way too much caffeine for how late it is in the day. Um, <laughs> I am Isa. I am your um, dirty anarchist who has had half of a margarita and uh <laughs> And uh, we're doing great. Yes. But but um, stopped my caffeine intake pretty early today, actually. <laughs> and we have a special guest with us, Jeffrey Ryan. Hi. Hello. Uh, it's great to meet you, too. And um, I am fully caffeinated. I, I, <laughs> I went for the hazelnut right before we got on the broadcast. So we should be amped. Oh. Awesome. Yeah, so um, I fully just copied and pasted your bio from your website into my notes. So give people an idea who you are. So Jeffrey Ryan is an author, adventurer, photographer, and historian. He has written several books about his outdoor exploits. His fascination with hiking trails and people and places have found, uh, I can read, found just off the beaten path. His debut book, Appalachian Odyssey, a 28-year hike on America's Trail, published by Downey's Books, in 2016 was hailed by the former executive editor of National Geographic as a classic of nature and travel writing and set off a national tour in your 1985 VW camper, which I'm very jealous of. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, and you've written a bunch of other stuff. The one that I've read is This Land Was Saved for You and Me, which I think is your most recent. Yes, it is. Came out just last year, uh, hardcover by Stackpole Books. And um very excited right. about that little hundred plus year uh, delving into our conservation history. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I also loved that the um, chapters were short, which really did great things for my ADHD brain because I was like, I'm making progress. This is great. <laughs> I, try to, I try to keep a, a nice pace up in my books. And um, I this story had so many great baton passes between the unknowns and the and the more knowns and um, it's always the way of history, right? We learn about the the big name people, and even what we learn about them is kind of truncated. But uh, oftentimes, there are people who set them up for success that are sort of lost, and uh, which is why I think your podcast really resonates with me. It's it's a wonderful premise. That's what it's all about. Yes. <laughs> and I loved how the book started so much further back than I expected because I admit I was sort of like, I mean, I knew that like the National Park Service didn't just like emerge out of like TR's head or whatever, but it's still like, I never really looked at it that closely. It was more, it was just sort of around, you know, like Pinchot shows up a lot when you talk about gilded age and i'll be honest the main thing i remember about him is that he has a ghost wife um but <laughs> what is a ghost wife 
his it's, uh, it's actually a really sad okay. story. Oh gosh, his, uh, his he he got married and his wife died. Did they even actually no? Get they were engaged were they... and uh, it was called off. Oh, man. And uh, it was much later when he got married for the first time, actually. Yeah, and he like would do seances to talk to her. And stuff. Oh, he was he oh, was wow devastated, oh, I'm sure th- devastated, and uh, and yeah, actually poured himself into work was was one of his outputs of that. Um, wow, it would have been wild to be. I just this is one. Of, I think one of my <laughs> my fallbacks on this podcast is to always relate to what would influencers do today with all of this and i feel like the era of séances and like um and what's what's the word for it actually the era of séance there's, there's the 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 actual uh, they were, movement. it was the, right, the spiritualist right. movement the spiritualist movement would have been so many influencers would have so oh gotten gosh. in on that being like, guys, I have the best seance ready for you. They have live seances. Like, and who do know? It would be like, yes, everybody. It would be yeah. so <laughs> I, I'm old enough to also remember the Ouija board craze of the sort of early sixties. And, you know, everyone had Ouija boards and had this thing where they put their hands on it and ask questions and move the dial around. And, um, oh yeah. Do you know they made? Do you know they made a Ouija board for girls really? specifically, like a pink wow. Ouija board? That's insane. It's one, it's one of those. It's one of those objects that has like gendered marketing that people really causes you to scratch your head and think, "What was the pitch on this one? Like, what was the audience? When did they think that girls like weren't going to be into the right. normal Ouija board?" Yeah, I definitely grew up with the Ouija boards because I was a kid in the like post Satanic Panic. When all the like Democrat parents wanted to be like, I don't believe in satanic panic. Here, have right. all the occults. Right. I'm a cool mom. Yeah, <laughs> we love a that, cult. That would be house. that would be a fun thing to have a, a sort of '70s theme night with the fondue pot and the Ouija board <gasps> and the uh, you yes. know that that would be something to bring back. D- oh, D-list, I love it. D-list I love fans. it. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Fun, actually, um, we talked about malls the other day. It's sort of. Yeah. In that yeah. Area. Yes. OK, so you picked a person that I'd never heard of. Uh, Franklin Benjamin. Huff, Poe. Is I that think. how you say his last name? Huff. That's that's works, too. So <laughs> Franklin Benjamin Huff, um, who was actually really hard to find information about and I ended up finding a biography of him on JSTOR uh-huh. from like 1932 or something <laughs> he was born in Martinsburg New York and actually as I go through we talked about this on the email but just so our listeners mm-hmm. know I'm just going to kind of like do the my normal thing where I just kind of do the and he was born and then he did this and I have places where I have questions uh, for Jeffrey and also you should feel free to jump in and with anything you want also if I say something that's wrong because I don't really know what I'm talking about with the forestry movement. So, okay. So Huff, he was born in Martinsburg, New York on July 20th, 1822 to Dr. Horatio uh, Gates Huff and Martha Pitcher Huff. And my favorite thing I found about this was that he, his parents wanted to name him Benjamin Franklin, but he already had a cousin with that name. So they just like flip flop. <laughs> Which was so cruel to do to a historian because I can't help it. I have to pause <laughs> Every time before I say his name, because I 
want to say Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) I'm a tour guide in Philly. Right. Like, (laughs) like. Ben it's Franklin. hard to say whether that would have like launched him into more obscurity or right. less obscurity. You know what I mean? <laughs> hard. There's a, a good, lot of gone either way. Yeah, there are a lot of Benjamin Franklin whatevers. That's true. In, uh, on the D list. <laughs> um, so his father Horatio, which is a very good name, it is, was a doctor, and was the first doctor to settle in Lewis County, just west of the Adirondacks. And I thought this was interesting because. I meant to look this up that this is a part two things. One, I always I think this is part of just living on the East Coast is when I say New York, I think the city first. And then I have to remind myself there is a very large, a whole other ninety nine point nine percent of land. Um, And I forget (laughs) how much of it was like European settlements actually came a lot later than I think Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. given relative to like Pennsylvania, for example, where they were like just plowing their way out to Pittsburgh. I And I, I don't know if this is the same region that Public Universal Friend was hanging out in. I should have looked that up before I went. Mm. But uh, Western New York is very, has a lot of mm-hmm. interesting characters. Yeah. Um, this Is this, tell me, is this the era, where is, um, just so I can get my 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 bearings. Where is um like like the Mormon Church at this? Time? Are we around that same era of like Rochester? <laughs> okay, all right, we're not there. Twenty years, okay. I believe. Got it. Cool. <laughs> yes, upstate New York. Um, they they've always got something interesting going on. At that. Oh, I do. Franklin Huff, though he was not starting new religious movements. He was rambling in the woods and collecting rocks, which. I love because I was a rock picker-upper as a kid, too. Um, And he was very curious, like his namesake, and an avid reader. And he kept really extensive diaries, which is amazing for historians. Yes. Um, Yes. He graduated from Union College, which is Schenectady, New York. That's one of those words I've heard said many times. And, um, in, I've actually uh, been there a lot, so I have a lot of practice saying Schenectady. <laughs> in 1843, he got his MD from Western Reserve College, which is now called Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland in 1848, and set up a medical practice in St. Lawrence County. And he picked where he set up his medical practice based on, in part, where there were good mineral deposits, like interesting mineral deposits. <laughs> Like he was like, this would be a good place for a medical practice, but I need to make sure there'll right. be interesting rocks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, there's so awesome. many people in this era that are multifaceted, and we can talk about that later. But you know, the generalists mm. ruled the world. Mm. Um, there, the the specialists, it, nobody. It seemed like most of the people in my book aspired to be nothing in particular and knowledgeable in general, um, and and that's really yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, especially because a lot of these guys, when I was reading it, I was like, how are they paying rent? Because, like, some of them are just indiv- independently wealthy, but right. they weren't all. A lot of them were just, this like, is, middle class. This is one of my, like, this is this reminds me of just, like, the rest of the jack-of-all-trades quote that everybody always leaves out. Is that, like, the jack-of-all-trades is a master of none, but then it finishes, but is oftentimes better a mas- than a master <laughs> of one. Which is like, you know, like it's like if this is a. I mean, it. What? Sorry, I think I feel like I. No, totally that's that's you. great. So that's no, you're that's great. exactly <laughs> what we're talking but about. But it's like yeah. this. It's this thing. It's this beautiful thing of before the era that you have to 
choose that one thing that we are where that we have to do today that it's like you're going to be a doctor okay that's the only thing you can do and that's why i stopped studying to be a doctor because i was like i need need to do other things (laughs) yeah yeah especially i mean that's an doctor is like an extreme example but i mean even when i was in college which was like 20 years ago i remember i was student teaching um, at a local high school with the band and the kids were telling me about how they were going to like go get their bachelor's degrees in like food science. And I'm like, mm. what, why aren't you majoring in like, I don't know, biology, like you're 17. Like, mm. do, you, do you, I don't, I was like, I'm 21 and I don't even know if this music teaching thing is what I want to do. And it turned out it was not um, <laughs> uh-huh. like, and it's, it's just mm-hmm. become even more so like when you see job yeah. postings and stuff, like people aren't, being ridiculous for doing that because job postings yeah. are asking for these like really oddly specific yeah. educational backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so I got really lucky that I, I'm in a industry where people come from all over the place and it's more about what you do and mm-hmm. what you've done than like what you right. studied in school. Yeah. Um, but that's, I love this doctor yeah. that loves rocks. This is so cool. I love him. Um, I was, I'm very fond of him now. Yes. Um, so he set up his, his rock collecting medical practice and he, when he wasn't being a doctor, he dedicated his time to the study of the history and climate slash meteorological slash botanical life of the region. And, uh, in eight, I, this is where I started having to jump around a little bit because the timeline didn't. He started writing extensively in that era, writing, um, histories about things like the history of Union College and the history of some of the towns of the area, which was um, a lot of people in this era were also aspiring authors who had various uh, levels of success, mostly non-success. But um, because print was so important in that age and there were so many outlets, newspapers, books, people were very hungry for basically that information medium, there was, it's sort of like the internet now, right? It's an insatiable beast. And um, he he Mm. fashioned, tried to fashion a career doing that as well. Yeah, I mean, it says here he published, the ones I wrote down were a history of St. Lawrence Mm -hmm. and Franklin counties, New York, and a history of Jefferson County in the state of New York. And I love these books. I come across them every once in a while in my research. Mm. Every county in the country, I would guess, has one of these books, probably written around the same time. Huh. Um, and they are of varying quality and <laughs> joy to readness. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just, it's so interesting. I have like two of them of Salem County, New mm-hmm. Jersey sitting on my mantle. Like just, mm-hmm. people just loved writing these things. Um, I had another thought about this and it's gone. Oh, I think this was the era of people bemoaning that people were like reading newspapers and dime novels too much Mm. so like now people are like you know you see people on the train and they're on their phones and nobody's talking to each other (laughs) and in those days it was like all these people are reading the newspaper instead of (laughs) talking to each other or filling their head with that garbage you know yeah the, the garbage, the the, the climate history it. of this county. Um. <laughs> somebody, somebody had. There's a great cartoon somewhere of like of people, like somebody like getting angry about like you know everybody's on their phone on the train, and then the next image is like 
in the 70s people on the train that are just everybody stuck <laughs> in the newspaper like the newspaper is just like everybody's there right. is right in the middle it turns out <laughs> nobody likes to talk on the train <laughs> it turns and out as someone people who just want to get to work and not in infrequent septa rider septa is not the place that you the the Philadelphia subway is especially unfortunately not the place where you want to start up a conversation with somebody unfortunately no. i love the people um, of our city they, just not on the train they may strike up a conversation with you because they want to sell you something that they swiped from cvs yes. um yeah get some good deals that way <laughs> um so in 1854, Huff was appointed superintendent of the 1855 New York Senate uh, census, which would include agricultural and industrial statistics. And I thought this was so weird when I read this the first time. Like, I was like, what does this have to, like, wh why do I care? Why? 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 Um, first <laughs> of all, he, he had made a local name for himself. He knew the lay of the land. And so he was, and he, and he knew a lot of people. So to go door to door collecting, and, and he was a st statistician, right? So it's like, here's the guy for upstate New York. And um, he was so good at it, he, he was invited back for a sequel. Yeah, and I have this great quote of his um, from, oh, when's this from? Oh, it had to have been from the 1860s because he's talking about I'll just read it. It's very, it's very well done. Um, in comparing and tabulating upon charts, the statistics of distribution and amounts of lumber as shown in the census of 1855 and 1865, I had noticed falling off in some regions, indicating an exhaustion of and an increase in others, showing that new fields had been, I didn't write this right, uh, I guess new fields have been found. Uh, did not take much reasoning to reach the inquiry. How will these other supplies last and what's next? So like he noticed these different, this, this. The 10 year in gap in the census, um, there was massive forest devastation due to clear cutting in those 10 years. And having been the guy who knew what it was like 10 years before, he went, oh my gosh, look at what's happening. And then and then, interestingly enough, in 1864, a book had been published called Man and Nature by um, George Perkins Marsh. And he was really the first one to have this aha moment about man's effect on the environment. And Huff read that. And all of a sudden, he was like, forestry, this guy's absolutely right. We need to start replenishing the forest. And what a, a revelation it was to Huff. It changed his life. Um, and then a little uh, event interrupted things called the American Civil War. And I loved this, that he was an inspector for the Sanitary Commission, because I just I love the Sanitary Commission because they just showed up places and were like, wash your hands. Right. <laughs> like, it is disgusting wow. in here. Just. Sweet, yeah. please. And the other, <laughs> I had no. Yeah, well, the understood. other piece of that was they had to figure out a way to get bandages and other supplies, medical supplies, to the front, and they had no infrastructure for doing it. So they hired to um, head up this thing, Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of um, Central Park, 
and uh, landscape designer and put him in charge of the sanitary commission and Huff worked for him. So there's another interesting um, meeting of yeah. minds, um, significant minds in, in history. And um, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, too, I always thought of it as a very a, a woman's thing because a lot of women were involved. And to be fair, they were the ones who were showing up and being like, maybe you should like. <laughs> Dress your wound. Clean. Right, right. Change your bandage. Um. Right. <laughs> Like maybe, maybe you might have better outcomes. Um, (laughs) I mean, this was back in the day when it was like, you did not wash hands. Like you would go straight from one bullet wound to the other. And everyone was like, why is everybody getting the same illness? We don't know yet because we're not quite there on germ theory. Or leaving leaving bullets in because we didn't know how to take them out. You know, it was really scary stuff. Or yeah. amputations, yeah. which is a whole other grisly part of it, but they didn't—they didn't sanitize it. I, I will yeah. say though, this is one of my pet peeves. They did have anesthesia. Yes. They didn't always have enough, right? But they mm. had it, and sometimes it would make things blow up, right? Because it was ether. Well, in the south, in the south, mostly had ether. They used mostly use chloroform in the north. Oh. But this they, is a pet peeve of mine. Or they bit the bullet, yeah. which is where that came from. So they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Oh yeah, here in Philly, we have the first public hospital, and on every single one of my tour buses, people love talking about how if you were a Quaker, so you didn't smoke or drink, they would hit you in the head with a hammer <laughs> oh, until you passed out. <laughs> oh lord. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, from that uplifting topic. Um, yeah. So he began to write to people in France and Germany regarding forestry because of this, what he had noticed um, in these two uh, cens- censuses. And this is where forestry as a topic of study was happening in the West, was Germany and France. Um, and so he started amassing his own library of relevant books. And his definition of forestry, I think, is important because I know this is one of those things that before I started learning about the Gilded Age, I just sort of was like forestry, like you take over forests. I don't know. Um, But it's actually really important. So how he defined it was that branch of knowledge that treats of woodlands, their formation, maintenance and renewal, the influences that may affect their welfare, the methods employed in their management, the removal, preparation and use of their products and the economies that may be gained skillful and skillful operation which is important because there's this whole forestry versus wilderness movement which i think is fascinating and i'd love to hear yeah well it, what's <laughs> amazing about huff is as i mentioned he he read the book man and nature and thought uh, marsh is absolutely right he was totally on board it was like a mind meld and he said at that point, you know what? I'm going to give up my medical practice and even my looking for rocks and become a, an advocate for saving the forest. And what was happening, just sort of to set the stage, is that the deforestation was so wholesale. It, it Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont had been largely clear cut um, to, to a point where, to take Vermont as an example, 85 to 90 percent of the state was devoid of trees, which we think of now as, you know, that's absurd. When you go to Vermont, 
it's nothing you but there to, to see the colors. <laughs> um, but wow. it went. They went through the Midwest, and they were rapidly um, approaching the West, and everything was being cut. And to take the Adirondacks for an for example, um, the loggers came in and wiped everything out. Uh, they bought the land. They wiped out the trees. And then they bolted. And so they weren't caring at all about legacy forest or anything. They were just on to the next forest. And they weren't paying taxes. So most of what is now the Adirondack State Park or or, um, Reserve um, was clear cut with unpaid taxes. And the state took hold of it and said, we need to do something with this land. It's not generating any income. Huh. And um, there's a whole story about how that happened. But Huff was living in the shadow of this clear cutting. And he went, oh, my gosh, I'm going to huh. be on the forefront of making a case for forestry as not only restoring what we had, but making it very clear to the forestry uh, people, the, the lumber operations that were really afraid of any regulation at all to say, I'm not against forestry. And this is really a key sort of thing that happens all the way through is we're, we're talking about having your profession be viable in a generation or two, the rate we're going, there isn't going to be anything. Um, and so he took it upon himself to, start going around and giving lectures about the importance of forestry, how we need it as a, as a sustainable thing to have to build railroads, to build sailing ships, to build houses, um, all of that. And if we keep going, we're not going to have the resource. And so he was going around as early as 1873, uh, even earlier than that. But in 1873, everything started coming to um, into focus for him. And um, he gave a speech in Portland, Maine, where I'm sitting right now, actually, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science in August of 1873. And it was called On the Duty of Governments in the Preservation of Forests. And what was really neat about that was he made a couple of um, really avant-garde um, sort of uh, proclamations. One was to build out a sustainable forestry movement to have preserved forests that were managed. But the second part of that was a groundbreaking idea to establish forestry schools so that people could be taught in proper forestry methods. Um, this predates the, the first forestry schools by more than 25 years. And, and he was way out ahead of the, the curve. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. And, and then there were late, later on, or maybe now, I'm not sure. One thing I thought that really struck me is that the forestry movement is also about use of the land. So it's not just mm-hmm. preservation, but it's also use of it versus the wilderness movement, which was like. Right. Just, just leave let, it. let Mother Nature just have her way. Right. Well. Mm. Which I found fascinating. Yeah. This is so interesting. Um, Just only because I did not know until very recently that 
before I mean like before the coal industry in Appalachia we always think of the coal Appalachia being you know it just it started with the coal industry and it was all coal that it was it began was all about forests they were clear cutting everything that was the first major industry that was in those mountains and you can imagine how much damage that ended up doing long term this these were those are of course all old growth super old old trees that are now still very new um that they're regrowing now and it's not as much of a they're they're still logging and it's still a whole thing um in some areas but um it's why you it's a part of why you see flooding um as much as oh my gosh i'm glad you mentioned that because the the other two pieces that really put modern forestry on the map were um the ecological issues the economic issues, um, and also the mm-hmm. ecological. So um, people mm-hmm. started recognizing that what Marsh had said way up front was right on the money, that droughts and floods were happening because of the clear cutting and the mudslides. And one of the things that actually made the Adirondacks come into fruition was the fact that the, the merchants in New York City were afraid that the Erie Canal which was seeing great water um, rises and falls. So it would be one third of its capacity and then it would be overflowing. And they thought, oh my gosh, if the, if the canal isn't viable, then the only one to ship our goods to the factories and from the factories is the railroad and we're gonna get taken to the cleaners. So we're behind the forestry, the reforestation because we need a viable alternative to the railroad. I never knew that, but it makes total sense that it took that number of people in the urban environment to get on board. Um, And then also we had um, floods that put people out of work in Manchester, Vermont. There was one that put 6,000 people out of work overnight in a textile mill um, because of the, the, the clear cutting that had happened in the white mountains and the storm surge, the, the uh, spring rains, caused a massive flood. And the other one was economic, which was tourism. Um, there were, there were um, one, one pastor in particular in the White Mountains had written extensively about, in fact, uh, a very famous article on the Atlantic Monthly about how when you climb to the top of Mount Washington, you look down on devastated landscapes. Who wants to come here and go up there and see that? And so you had this really neat consortium of opinion growing because of uh, of different aspects of what forestry was doing. And that really struck me. This is jumping a little further ahead in my notes, but that is fine. I was really struck by Huff's work with industry, like not even just a little bit, Um, like when he did, where is it, Uh, in... January 1876, when he gets that money from um, the Congress, from, you know, the U.S. Congress to start, like, figuring this out, he talked a bunch with not just preservationists, but also, like, lumber, salt, railroad, tanning industry. He, like, got passes from the railroads to scoot all over the West. Um, So, obviously, they weren't mad at him. Um, to collect his data. And I was sort of sort of wondering, like, 
what are your thoughts on that? And also what we can learn from that as far as our current environmental challenges. Oh my gosh, he was amazing. So he not only did all of that, he went all over the country and cataloged what kind of trees grew where, what the best um, conditions were for growing them, um, how, how to propagate the trees, how to, what the, how to start seedlings. Um, in the same report, which was over 660 pages, which he presented to Congress in, in, in but that a year. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, the, the first yeah. one was 1,100 pages. Uh, <laughs> in one no year, you know, it, in like That's a year amazing. and a half. And he's like, here's what the curriculum should be in the forestry school. I mean, it's insane. And, wow. um, but absolutely, he was, again, his, his whole point was, I'm not here to put, and, and this is a consistent theme, as Pinchot very much thought the same, and TR urged him to sit down with people of differing opinions and sort of figure out the way forward together. There, there are a lot of lessons here. But um, Huff was one of the first, and he sat down with, with people and said, you know, this is really about where are we going to be in 20 years, 40 years, 60 years? Are your kids be going to be able to become foresters if we just keep doing this? Mm. And um, this, the seeds were sown, pardon the pun, for for multi for multi use yeah. land um, usage, which mm. um, obviously is is still being practiced to this day. Even the state, the um, most of the state forests and all of the national forests are designed for multiple use, recreation, um, mm. as well as lumbering and other extractive industries to to a degree. And um, it's always been in the DNA. And I think that that's really positive. Mm. It's probably the only way this ever got put together. Well, and, and you said like that it was they go to these people and say like, what are we, are, you know, your kids are not going to be able to be foresters because there will not be a forest. Was that something that spoke to those people? Like those heads of industry? were? They- yes, by and large, yes. I mean, I, yeah. I can't say they were all won over at the beginning, but sure, you know, but, well, but sure. <laughs> it, was, it was all moving that way and Huff was carrying the banner. Um, he, he actually mm-hmm. rose to become, um, contrary to many people's understanding, including my own before I wrote the book, um, Pinchot is largely hailed as the first chief of the, the um, of, of forestry, and he wasn't. Um, he was the first chief of the um, of um, U.S. Forest um, National Forest. Uh, what am I trying to say? U.S. Forest uh, Group. But um, Huff was first, and um, Huff predated mm. him, but. Um, Unfortunately, Huff got booted out in a political uh, play. People were afraid of how much influence he had. Um, and so yeah. he, he was booted out and they put in a horticulturist into the forestry position, which um, my understanding was he was largely from a sort of designing landscapes for, uh, for uh, cemeteries and whatnot. Oh. And, uh, Pin- Pincho oh, railed boy. against this guy's appointment. Yeah. I have a quote <laughs> from your book <laughs> about it. The, oh, his Lord. name is Eggleston. Yeah, Eggleston. Eggleston. 
uh, Dr. N.H. Eggleston was one of those failures in life whom the spoils of the system is constantly catapulting into responsible (gasps) positions after three years of innocuous oh my goodness I had to look up this word I didn't know this word Uh, destitute Dr. Engelson in turn was replaced whoa what a burn what a burn (laughs) that is a read right there (laughs) yeah the feel I was getting from it was very um that meme that went around for a while, probably like seven years ago, where there's like a, a very poorly drawn gold star. Right, says, you right. Tried. Yes. <laughs> you had oh one job, right? Oh yeah. God. You had one you, job. <laughs> oh, I was going to say U.S. Forest Service. That's what I was trying to get around my head around the uh, Pincho's first title, but um, it's it's really fascinating. And um, just to go back to quickly about. Uh, differing points of opinion. There's one, I don't know if you got to this part of the book yet, but it's a really seminal moment where where Pincho gets sent out west to basically work with the foresters out there, even though they despised him. And um, mm. he spent more than two days in the audience listening to these people berate him at the podium. And um, and call him every name in the book. And then finally, it's Pincho's turn to speak. And he's introduced at the podium as the most evil man on the face of the earth and has to walk up to the podium and um, speak to them. And his message was, uh, despite what you've heard, I'm a forester just like you are. And I'm not here to take your job away. I'm here to help make sure you have one. And he made this scintillating speech and um, he, he didn't quite get a standing ovation, but he turned the crowd around and um, set, up, set the stage for them to come on board with getting behind a U.S. Forest Service. And it was a huge lesson for me, given today's environment especially. But, you know, TR said you need to go out there and lay out our point of view, um, come what may. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a great deal of the people sitting in the audience, they thought he really is one of us. Um, He's he's not trying to be the one that's telling them what to do. He's trying to get them to help formulate a plan together about what to do. And that was huge. It was huge at the time. and And I think it's still... A great lesson. Well, just being able to have that personal strength to sit there and listen to people tell you how terrible you are <laughs> um, and then get up on stage and talk to those same people. I mean, that's. Yeah. Wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, yeah. But he gets the last <laughs> word and it seems like he knew how to do that. He sounds like he was this uh, this kind of. He was a pistol. Like, he knew he how was to a speak pistol. to people. He was. Yeah, he was. He was, a, he was absolutely dedicated to getting this profession codified and off the ground. And, um, you know, he had people lined up to work with him that just wanted to work for him because he knew how to run Mm -hmm. an agency that people had say in. And one guy said, you know, we'd walk through a flood or or into a fire for Pincho because we were doing something important. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
he he was quite a personality. Yeah, and wasn't correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this when he showed up? Like, I this was so long ago when I read this that there were like only like there was like one forester for like this absolutely ludicrous number right. of miles that there's no way and they were like being paid like barely enough to right like, they they were given they were <laughs> given a, a rule book and a horse and told to ride into these wow. massive land holdings and say guess what i'm a i'm a 24 year old recent graduate of the yale forestry school who just barely knows how to ride a horse and i'm here to tell you that um the rules are changing and um, we need to work together, <laughs> you know, and um, think about what that took. Um, and once again, Pinchot. Also think about the average yeah. four-year-old too. And <laughs> like- once again, Pinchot, out of his own pocket, um, it, it would later be found out that um, largely when the winter came, they'd move back to D.C. And Pinchot, out of his own pocket, would pay their room and board for the winter and actually give them a raise wow. over what the government had paid them when they're out in the spring, fall, and summer in uh, New Mexico or uh, you know wherever it may be, Idaho or whatever. Um, it was it was an amazing time, and and what's really cool to me is that um, the forestry movement started before the national park movement. It it was something that was right. identified that as me. being critically important mm-hmm. to the country, um, even before the, the national parks came into being. Yeah, I made a note earlier on that when they made the, uh, where is it? The, when in 1872, when New York, the New York Senate uh, designed to preserve forests and game land in Northern New York, and they used the word park, and that was like, a big, like, it sounds like political mistake because people heard park and they're like, oh, this is just where like rich people are going to go. Right. Like, Preserve. Know, right. Right. And um, the, the Adirondacks are interesting because Pinchot was among those who was really trying to sell the idea of scientific forestry to be what replaced all that clear cutting. And um, due to a number mm-hmm. of hiccups um, in managing that land, and the fact that the land had been devastated to such a degree, the reaction from most people there was, we don't, we don't want foresters. Look what foresters did already. So he was oh, trying wow. to rewrite the rules, but nobody wanted to listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he, and right, he did. Um, <laughs> so one of my favorite things about that report you talked about, um, that was 650 pages, but originally 1,100, is that there were supposed to be 100,000 copies of the report printed just because that was just, I guess, what they did with the reports like that in those days. And the printing, the p- committee on printing, like, freaked out. <laughs> they were like, we cannot print 100,000 copies of this 1,100-page document. You need to pare it down. <laughs> so he removed all the statistical stuff, and then it was only 650 pages, and they copied 25,000 copies. Um, and then he wrote another report, which was limited to 1,900 copies, um, which he seemed right. pretty irritated about. And um, then, 
because he wanted this to be like spread around and not just given to right. the house. I mean, the house is important. Like these, these would be distributed to the house, maybe distributed wider. And then than Huff started the first forestry journal, which is another sort of wild thing that is lost to history. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't get enough subscribers because there were not enough people yet in the movement for sustaining a magazine. So uh, it, it lasted about a year. But um, he was the guy. I mean, he, he wrote the first forestry mm -hmm. journal. Um, mm. Amazing. You know, someone had to make uh, had to make uh, Lexus Nexus, not Lexus Nexus, but Netscape yeah, before right. you could have, you know. Yeah. So one thing I thought was really interesting was the governmental side, which isn't surprising because I'm a politics nerd. But I, I had a little trouble following it a little bit just because the forestry work kept bouncing between departments. Like nobody quite knew whose responsibility it was. What what did that do, positive or negative, to like the legitimiz legitimization of forestry? It in, stalled in, it. As a governmental it. It stalled it for body. about 15 years. And when Pincho first was hired um, to be the head of the Forest Service, he was an advisor basically none of the land was was under his purview it was it was over in interior so the department of interior had all of the existing forest land that had been carved out and pincho had no uh, official capacity in managing that all he could do was sort of give advice and which was largely ignored because the, the timber industry wanted things to keep going the way they were going. And so then Congress at the, at the same time was threatening to take away Pincho's department and position um, in, in reverse order and said, there's no need for this department. You're not doing anything. And Pincho being brilliant said, okay, I can't manage federal land, but I can advise private landowners how to manage their forests. So he printed a circular called Circular Number 21, and it's about how to manage forests privately, and thought, I'm going to prove that there's viability here, that, that people are going to ask for people to help manage their forests. And it was wildly successful. It was Within a year, 21 states were represented by people who wanted to have Pinchot send uh, young foresters to them to help advise them on how to manage their forests. And that really saved his job. Well, yeah. Wow. And it's really like the perfect era for that, too, because you've got these uh, Gilded Age, like new money folks who are trying to figure out how to spend their money. Um, besides on platinum wallpaper, right. Right. see the breakers. Um, and I mean, they're doing that too. Uh, but, you know, they're like, I, here in Philadelphia, almost all of our libraries were paid for by um, Carnegie. But uh, I, you know, I guess the, the, you talked about one person who had this like huge forest and he was just like, I don't know, man, right. do your thing. Right. Forested. Well, it was Olmsted again <laughs> who got hired to do the landscape at the Biltmore Estate. And um, 
right it now. was 85,000 acres or some ridiculous amount, most of which had been clear cut. And Olmstead said, man, I, I'm, I'm maxed out. I'm trying to do your gardens and the Chicago World's Fair and, you know, five other projects. So why don't we hire this kid named Gifford Pinchot? He's, he's just learned about forestry in Europe. And that was his first gig was to try to prove the viability of forestry. And that provided the springboard for him to become a national celebrity and uh, first, first forester. But um, yeah, but this um, privately owned land and farming government employees out to help um, advise these landowners on how to take care of and manage their forests for production um, was a huge success. And basically, when he became the head of the Forest Service, he published the first six months after the control, I, I should mention, how he got control was he kept hitting his head against the wall with trying to get it done to move the lands over from interior to agriculture so that he could administer how the lands would be managed. Even though Roosevelt was on board with him, they still didn't have the political clout to get it done in Congress. So Pinchot had um, set up a conference and invited people from across the spectrum. So it was Weyerhaeuser was there, um, a number of forestry and um, lumber operations and um, also people from other parts of the uh, government that would be affected by the forestry department, such as um, other departments of interior that were threatened, um, they all came to the conference. And there were also people there from uh, economic, the railroads and, and whatnot. And so um, the shippers, and he got them to get on board with the idea of bringing all of it over to his side of the ledger. And within 21 days of the conference ending, uh, Roosevelt signed it with Congress's uh, blessing over to Pinchot's uh, purview. So he was now running the show. And it's it's such a, like, my brain, sorry. Um, but, like, Huff was doing so much of the, like, just groundwork to get him there. Um, I thought it was sort of interesting that everybody was going to Europe to forestry schools there. Um, we didn't have it any. It just seemed fascinating to me. <laughs> right. I know, but like, this is, they have this like different degrees so and stuff. I, and I, it's, it's also like, I'll go into this later. I, I think it's the, the whole like wilderness movement is so funny. But um, the when he came back, so Huff went to Europe and like went to all to like which part of Europe? Germany was Germany was the sort of. I, uh, I'm going to mix metaphors here, but Germany was the creme de la creme. Um, Germany was the the top <laughs> um, one, and and France was not far behind. They were both highly regarded. Yeah, I was wondering if it was Germany because I we were just there and we were just in the huts, which. Has they have a literal? This is mind blowing. They have a literal 
okay, there was a big, a huge blow to the Hearts Mountains, the forest in the last few years, which was, I think it's a type of beetle. I forget. I forget. It was basically around 2020, this beetle like took over and just wiped out just tons of these trees. And there, and we went on this, um, and there was actually a monument there to the trees that had died, like this incredibly huge monument. Um, and I was like, oh, this must be to a person. To no, it was like to the, to the hundreds of thousands of, of the, the, the leaves, the trees that we lost. Um, and they had, but they had all these signs up, these informational signs basically being like, don't worry. <laughs> like, like this is really bad right now, but here's what we're doing to fix it. And like, here's what we see is going ahead. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible uh, what they're, what they're up to. And so I, my, my first thought was like, Oh my gosh, yeah, you must've gone to Germany because I hired someone to help him like read the right. books that were in German. That's awesome. Um, but when he came back from Europe, that's when he lost his, his job. Oh, wow. To this, this, uh, mediocre. Right. Eggleston. Right. And what, yeah, <laughs> what, what I thought was so, um, just impressive is that he kept yeah. working in the department. Even, even though he went from being like the head to just one of the agents. It was the mission that was most just, important, that's right. how much he cared. Absolutely right. Yeah. I just think that shows a lot of like, I don't know what the word is. Dedication, right. Personal strength, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, but he keeps on writing. That's it seems to be the... Um, the theme through his life is he just keeps bless writing. his heart you know he, he did a lot of writing and yeah. it, that, talk about dedication <laughs> yeah he so he he founded the american journal of forestry which was short-lived um in 1882 he prepared his elements on forestry which was the first attempt to present the principles of forestry in english and in one volume wow. it must have been a very large volume wow. um he uh lived to see new york state found the first state forestry commission um, with actual administrative power and the creation of the Catskill and Adirondack preserves. Mm. And he died in Lowville in 1885 and his home is a national historic landmark. Wow. And yeah, he's just one teeny tiny part of this whole movement that I know, like I said before, like I took a class on the most of my 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 history education has been very much east coast based but i took a class on the american west and i definitely got this feeling of like i don't know roosevelt just like said ah that land over there mm -hmm. that's ours now um and it's that's what i loved about your book was it was it didn't just talk about these people i'd heard of but it went back to like their fathers and mm -hmm. like what their fathers were doing that inspired yeah, I, them when I when I yeah started whiteboarding out the book and putting the characters on the wall, I was really taken by that. I, I was initially trying to do a sort of finding your roots of the conservation movement, and the roots got so intertwined mm -hmm. that it was difficult. But um, I think I, I I hope to think that I struck the right balance because I really feel strongly about the the people who set people up for success and you know that's why your show resonates so much is that the d-listers without them 
you know, without them doing yeah. the food prep, we wouldn't have the buffet, right? It's like, you know, yeah. he, he was one of those people. And, um, you know, I, I won't get sidetracked, but Benton Mackay was another. And he, you know, all of the people mm-hmm. who sort of did this had these uh, DNA of, I'm going to try to be all these different things. And it's not really clear when they're doing them because they seem disparate. I'm going to be an author. I'm going to be a fruit farmer. I'm going to be a merchant Marine. I'm going to, you know, and then all of a sudden they end up designing central park and you're like, you know, if if you look back and you say, Oh my gosh, everything that they did led them to become the guy who designed central park. But when he was doing it, you're like a fruit farmer to a novelist, to a merchant Marine. It just, it doesn't seem to be making sense. But um, yeah. all of those things and his ability to see Europe and see how parks were designed and how important they were to people's ethos and, and sense of well-being and all that were what led Olmsted to be Olmsted or Pinchot to be Pinchot or Hoff to be Hoff. And um, yeah. that, I think, is one of the cool parts of history fascinating one thing that i'm wondering about and i just this is not something that i know much about at all but did he have any contacts with native uh like tribes like that were doing any type of forestry at that time um and what if so what i think most of his stuff would have been sort of choreographed unfortunately um in the way that he was traveling through the west but i also think that the the kind of quote unquote forestry that um, the natives were doing was so um, opposite of of the sort of clear cutting model. It was what we'll cut enough to heat mm, ourselves yeah. or to smoke meat or whatever, and then that's it. I mean, it's almost like leave no trace, yeah. um, you know. Yeah. And and so I I think that that was fairly. Um, if it was seen, it probably wasn't even realized that they were leaving such a light imprint. This is something that actually I found really interesting even before this, um, because whenever I read about these guys, there is this part of me that is like, you're reinventing the wheel, (laughs) but they had to, they had to reinvent Mm -hmm. the wheel because this is, this is how history went. Um, but it's, I, I recently, like, I don't know a ton about this, but I've, heard and did a little tiny bit of research that some before colonizations this is before all these guys showed up um that forest forest maintenance done by indigenous nations was like just so different from what we do today where it was like it was interesting because these european colonists showed up and said oh my gosh this place is amazing there's like berry bushes along the trails that are edible. How did they and get this there? Just, this just magically <laughs> happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's part yeah. of why I think the wilderness movement is so funny. Uh-huh. Because like most uh-huh. of this space was managed. Yeah. And then colonization happened and then it just started getting cut right. down because that's yeah. just what this is this is so is. interesting because that's exactly like what you know you both are are mentioning here that I'm like this is what I imagine it was it's kind of after the era that you know that a lot of these tribes have sadly you know been pushed out or killed and all of these things and so yeah then you have the industrialists come in and they're doing all this clear cutting and just like you said 
he's then he comes in it's like sort of reinventing the wheel it's like we have to we have to figure out a different way another way of, of doing all of this um and with and then but it's like just looking at at your book and and this history it's 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 i've never really paused to think what would have happened if we didn't have you know if that if someone with you know, someone at that level of of power like and people behind him hadn't right. stepped in and done something. Um, and then the question also being, you know, like that I'm also wondering about is how can this be, how could this be like, how can we replicate this? To, like, what is, I mean, so much has changed since that era, you know, like how can we do this today? Cause one of the things that struck me is this is how, you know, as, as you were saying that, like, when he told people that, you know, what are we going to do in 10, 20, 40 years that that really resonated with people in the way that today, ever since you have like scorched earth policy and, you know, the, you know, the folks that came in in Reagan, you have these guys who were like, who, you know, the world's going to end anyway. (laughs) Like they actually are starting to think like, we don't care about the next 10 or 20, 50 years. And so how do we, yeah, this is something I know nothing about, but I'm like, I'm, I'm, yeah, what can we imagine? Well, we I think what him. what I originally had thought was I was going to end my book with the passage of the Wilderness Act in 64. And I and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of time between 1964 and now what's what's happening now. So I added an extra chapter at the end to speak to what is happening now. And I'm really enthused about mm-hmm. some of the initiatives that are happening now. And I know this is a whole other like big lead up conversation, but in a nutshell, what we had until about probably 15 years ago was maybe even 10 was um, if you were concerned about the environment, you were either sort of pigeonholed or, or asked to declare yourself informally, you know, are you a preservationist or a conservationist? Mm -hmm. You know, do you, do you want to save (laughs) the land and have it be left alone? Or do you believe that the land should be managed in some form mm. um, for game, mm. you know, for, for species that live on it, as well as, um, you know, not just trees, but other, you know, just should the deer herd be managed, et cetera. And what's happening now is the lines are blurring and um, particularly mm. on lands that can, that can hold both. Um, which I think is fascinating mm. because we need to figure out a way, I think, to coexist. It, it doesn't have to be black or white. It doesn't have to be preserved or managed. It can be preserved and managed. And there's a really unique organization called Northeast Wilderness Trust. And what they're doing is they're, they're rewilding lands that have been largely clear cut and and or ruined, ruined mm. temporarily. And they're trying to reforest them and mm. bring them back. And as part of that, they're pooling yeah. money with um, conservationists, with foresters, with forest companies, forest products companies, and saying, what if we pool our, our money and get this tract of land? Can we have some of it be forever in recreation and and?" Um, forever wild status, and can we have more of some of it be selectively cut? And one of the initiatives that's coming out of that, which is really mind-blowing, is 
a whole initiative to build giant wooden beams, laminated beams for uh, commercial size buildings, not just for homes, but to replace steel beams with wood that's locally harvested as opposed to locally harvested and managed for the next, um, uh, you know, 20 years more can be harvested um, instead of having it poured in a foundry halfway around the world and shipped here, which has huge carbon footprint ramifications and everything else. And it's just such neat thinking. It's, um, it's starting to, to take off and, and become something viable. And I think that's really exciting. Um, the old trees can stay old long enough to continue to be carbon sinks effectively themselves. But then when they're starting to age out and they're sort of on the cusp of, we need to have these come out, the ones that are coming up um, behind them are large enough to take their place. So it's a really neat, I think, way of looking at the resource and the um, possibilities. Yeah. I love that because, like, I'll be honest, I never even thought of thought about the impact of steel beams on the environment. And it's, I mean, this is all, like, right now in Philadelphia, very, feels very present because, <laughs> like, today we had a code orange again because of right. the Canadian wildfires. Um, like I looked out the window of my office and I was like, well, at least I can see the skyscrapers this time. They're a little hazy, but they're out there. <sighs> yeah. um, and it's just like, it's all this stuff, um, which I'm curious about what um, challenges you feel like our national parks face today. I, I admit for a long time, my experience with national parks was I, I would give money every year to the Independence National <laughs> um, <laughs> Historic Park um, so that I could be a tour guide. Um, but then I started following the national parks on social media, not because I reached out to it, because it was, but because it was so funny. Oh my they gosh! Post the yes, stuff. yes, <laughs> I know. Oh, I need to follow them. Yeah, what? you need. To There's follow nothing them. to They're do so here. Good. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's nothing to do here. That's the whole idea. You go out and enjoy nature, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the comments are funny. I I think. Yeah, I think there are a number great. of challenges right now with the national parks. One is a they, they've they've become very popular, and um, you know that's a great thing. And it, it's a resource management challenge. It's how do we make sure that the parks can withstand the visitorship that it, they get. Um, the the great thing about one silver lining thing, I won't say a great thing about COVID, but one silver lining thing that came out of the COVID experience was people spending more time outdoors and discovering the power of being in nature. And um, however, um, that usership has been a real challenge for infrastructure and things like maintaining steps and trails and um, you know, the, yeah. the most popular places get loved to death. And um, some of the lesser known, yeah. the um, the Franklin Benjamin Huffs of the National Park System um, do not get seen as much. So, you know, I always tell people it's a good idea to try to visit some of the lesser visited ones. You have a, a more wonderful experience and you're not, not fighting for campground space. Mm. But... Um, it's a big challenge for them. It, it's, it has been from the beginning, really. Um, how do you maintain that balance between having a place that's really special and having it 
stay that way. And this is this is something we're always talking about in tourism, because if you're successful in tourism, you you run the right. risk of loving it to death. Mm. Like you said, um, the tourists, the, even the most conscientious tourists have an impact on the space that they're visiting. And uh, I can say like one thing that I'm aware of, even though I don't work in the West, but I have a lot of colleagues who do. And they're talking about a lot about how they've deeply limited the number of motor coach licenses that they're giving out. Um, and they're doing it, I think, in a really smart way because they're giving it to, you know, some company will apply and pay the whatever they need to um, to get their their license for the season. But it's like per company has a license this season and they're allowed to share them. Right. Which I think is really smart because right. that's what they're really trying to do. Right. They're trying to make it that there's right. only this many motor coaches coming in each day or whatever. Um, so it's not like quite right. as arduous as it could be. So tour guides, we're always upset about anything that makes well, it's funny. Um, I've been it's, hearing it's all funny about as, you know, <laughs> someone who's spent a lot of time on the Appalachian trail, even, even, uh, places that are designed for foot travel are seeing, uh, unprecedented use. And, um, yeah. some of the reasons we go out there are not, are not to be around crowds. So how do we manage that? How do we, one of the things mm. that I think the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is, is doing a great job of is trying to get people to start at different places on the trail rather than everybody go to mm. Georgia in March and early April and try to go north yeah. in a big bubble. How about if you yeah. started in Maine and went south or what happens if you started in Harper's Ferry and went north and then went down to Atlanta and yeah. hiked back to Harper's Ferry or something. They call it flip-flopping. Well, and you've done a lot of this, right? Of like doing the Appalachian yes. Trail in, in sections. Over 28 years to finish mm. it. <laughs> yeah. um, wow. Um, so I'm curious then, like what suggestions you would have for someone who has no real outdoors experience. Like I know I'm, I'm an inside kid. Uh, my wife grew up going to like summer camp in Georgia where she was like, I always joke saying that she was bivouacking and she's always like, we weren't bivouacking. <laughs> but to someone who went to like yep. theater camp. Well, you can't. like bivouacking. Um, <laughs> we had air there conditioning you go. in our spaces. Uh, uh, you know, baby steps. <laughs> um, baby steps. I mean, first of all, spend spend some time making sure that footwear is is the right size and uh blister proof um you know get get your uh -huh. footwear and walk around town a bit um break them in but i always tell people the best thing to do two things one is if you're if you're a total newbie go with someone who is more experienced and you can do that by joining a meetup or or um, a lot of the outdoor stores or outdoor groups um they're, they're everywhere. Um, you can find people to go with just to kind of learn the basics. But the other piece of it too, for me is, um, if you're buying equipment, set it up, get used to it. Um, learn how to cook on your camp stove in the backyard or in a park, mm -hmm. um, set up your tent in a park or a backyard. Um, get your, get your flashlight and in, in a top pocket of your pack uh, nearby. Because I always tell people there's nothing to, to ruin your um, camping time than to have to learn how to set up a tent in the dark for the first time. Or, um, God forbid, it's pouring rain and you're 
trying to set this thing up and you're getting soaked. So, you know, it's just basic yeah, stuff like yeah. that and, and keep it simple. Make something easy for dinner. Um, you know, Lord knows there's enough stuff in the one pot cooking aisle in the store or, um, you know, instant soup or, um, God forbid ramen. I, um, I'm ramen. <laughs> I'm ramen down. <laughs> um, we, we declared on the trail the fall of the ramen empire. The, the, um, <laughs> you know, there, I love yeah, the culture of the Appalachian Trail. It's great. I'm thoroughly and, um, fascinated by it. You know, that's it. Just start out easy and find a group, you know, Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, Keystone Club, um, any of them mm. that, you know, outdoor stores, REI, L.L. Bean, all of them. They, they all have outing groups that can uh, help you get your feet under you and uh, have a good time. You know, and the other piece is don't don't get too aggressive with your mileage um, estimates when you start out. Just take it easy. Stop. Take pictures. Drink, drink plenty of water, bring a water filter with you and um, have fun. I love that. Thank you. Um, and also yeah. we, um, <laughs> sorry, that was, I, I just needed to throw in that um, we were out talking about national parks today. I got lost in Yellowstone for seven hours with my dad because we I forgot about that. Went the wrong. <laughs> we went on the wrong trail. We thought it was the trail going back to the parking lot, and because he was like, "Oh, they're all orange." Um, though he was like, "It's the orange trail," but they were all orange. So we went on like the outward bound. But don't. That's my only piece of advice. Don't just think. Don't just, don't just follow the color of the trail. Right. Know what trail it is first. <laughs> don't do it because you'll end up like me and you'll say, I never want to go back to Yellowstone again. And look at all the beautiful things I'm missing out on by never going back to Yellowstone because the I'm other, the, uh, too the, scared of it. <laughs> funny, funnily enough. Yeah. I have a similar oh, story wow. from Iceland where my, my ex took me on what he said. He's like, do you want to go on a little walk? And I said, sure. You know, we'll start with a little walk. It's, then you it's get lost. Just a little further. <laughs> and he took the wrong he took the wrong the wrong turn and they didn't have like blazes in the same way that we do but like to be fair to me and not to him he messed up um i found realized later there is a giant arrow made of rocks right there Uh that he just walked by and i trusted him and that was a mistake and we ended up on like the old like viking trail where we had to like climb up sheer rock it was the most terrifying oh my goodness oh my Um, goodness we have similar i found out later that that particular trail we were on that little walk um was the most challenging non-technical hike in europe (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you what when we got up there, it was gorgeous. I'm sure. I'm sure. Sadly, <laughs> the Yellowstone walk was not even that pretty. It was like <laughs> the walk that nobody does, like for because there's no reason to just it was uh, just not outward a good bound. One. But um, the um, yeah, the, um, <laughs> just out there. the other piece of advice, giving uh, wayfinding advice, is there are a couple great apps um, that um, show you pinpoint you right where you are on the trail. Um, Amazing. One of them is called Amazing. that I really enjoy is called Gaia GPS G A I A. Um, it's it's great, and you can take pictures along your hike, and it tells you what your average speed is and where you're at and all that stuff. And um, you know, the only um, the only caveat to that is you have to have a charged phone or an iPad, or um, and you or you can't drop it <laughs> yeah. in the stream. But you know. I, I, I think that um, <laughs> it's a good thing to have. 
Yeah. And oh, this is making me excited. I also know. I Take always take there. pictures yeah. of the trailhead of the map that they have. That's the Our, other one yes. is take a yes. picture because Critical. your your description might have mm -hmm. changed. Um, in rare cases, the trail gets fixed or rerouted or whatever, but they're always uh -huh. up to date on uh -huh. the kiosk. So you take a picture of the map on the kiosk, and when you're hiking uh -huh. along, you can even blow it up on your phone and go, oh, this is where we're at. Yeah. We're at. Uh -huh. So there, there you go. Right. Oh, I will do that next time. Yes. That's smart. Um, oh, my gosh. What was my thought? Oh, I can't I can't get over the idea of just what popped in my head was this idea that Huff would have been so into all of these like Fitbits and all these apps that track like how fast you go. Oh, and how, he would have been, like, he would he would have been all, all about stats, that. And then he would have released a report about all of his stats for everybody to read. On Instagram. <laughs> and, and not, not, oh, and, my gosh. Uh, not to mention Cornell has a an app where you can hold it up and it will tell you what bird you're listening to. I've heard of this. I've heard of this. And I was going to try to download that app and see if it could pick up any of the birds in South Philly, um, even though they probably won't be as diverse as some other areas. I'd be curious yeah. because I don't know if yes. you realize this, Lisa, because we don't usually hear it in the moment. But when I go back to edit, there is right. always bird chirping That's on your so thing. Funny. On my that is so funny. I moved here partially for the birds. Like the, there's a lot of birds in South Philly and I moved here from center city because I felt really because my cat loves, like he's a hunter. He just loves, he's like, he's vicious and he loves yeah, little TV. that he can intimidate. Right. And he loves his TV. <laughs> and I was getting, I was feeling so bad for him because I lived in this like skyscraper in downtown where he saw no birds almost ever. And now we're here in Philly and South Philly and he is, li he's living it up and I we're hearing birds all the time. So I think I'm going to get that app and I want because I want to know what birds these are. Because some of yeah, them are really great. freaking cute. They're, they're <laughs> so cute. I don't know what they're... I think they're eating a lot of pizza. We have a lot of Italian food down here. Because we yeah. have some chunky birds at my, on my back porch all the time. I don't know what they're eating, but they are chunky yeah. and they're adorable. <laughs> Yo, well, thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey, for coming in. Yeah, this was amazing. Um yes. Issa and I are just always talking over each other. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so plug, plug your stuff. Well, I've stuff. got several books out. In fact, you mentioned the Appalachian Trail book. That was called Appalachian Odyssey. And um, it's uh, basically a 28-chapter book. Each one was, uh, each chapter is about how we did a different section of the trail every year. Um, a, a newfound friend of mine and I who ended up being like a brother by the time we finished our almost 30-year quest. And... Um, I think we're into year 39 now of going on a hike every year together. Um, so that's been pretty cool. And then um, my second book was about the history of the trail called um, Blazing Ahead. And then I took a little bit of a turn a la um, Frederick Law Olmsted and, and, uh, and Mr. Huff and uh, did a book about a hermit that lived in Monson, Maine and ran an illegal... Uh, smuggling ring in the between the 1890s and 1930s and it's um, largely based cool. on on uh, fact and no one could figure out where he got his wealth until he was on his deathbed and told people he had buried 40,000 in gold near his cabin um, which has never been found by the way 
So that one's called Hermit, The Mysterious <laughs> Life of Jim White. And then, um, as, as has been mentioned many times, my newest book came out last year. It's a hardcover called This Land Was Saved for You and Me. And uh, you can find where to buy them on my website, jeffryanauthor.com. And um, all the various places you can buy them, some well-known and some um, the D-listers of bookstores. But you you will find them. Yes, I have the uh, Blazing Great. Ahead. I'm very excited to read it oh, at some point, God. especially after reading about Mackay in this book. Yeah, both both of them are characters. <laughs> so a- Avery, Avery was Steve Jobs <laughs> on steroids. He wanted this thing built, and it was his <laughs> way, and... <laughs> He made a lot of, he made a, a few friends. I didn't talk about and a lot any of that enemies, part of the book, but, but there's, there you have it. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a yeah. lot of, a lot of drama. Um, so thank you everyone so much for listening to Delicious of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. A huge thank you to April keys for the use of the song misfit from her album mountain view. You can find her on all the social media platforms and also a big congratulations to April keys. Issa and I were just at her baby shower this past weekend. Um, So I I texted her before we recorded and she said we could mention baby keys. Oh, so it's very exciting. April and baby keys. Yes. Yes. Also in Maine, actually. Um, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Delicious of History, no hyphens. A big shout out to the folks supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support us and get access to all sorts of exclusive content uh, like Delish Drabbles and stickers, there's new stickers coming out. I'm very excited. Yay. Very excited for these stickers. Um, become a patron of this program like uh, Labor John. Just plug them again because we're, we're, we're a podcast. Is Labor John a patron? Yeah. That's so I- lovely. Thank you, Labor John. <laughs> and. All this and more can be found on our website, deliciousofhistory.com. Again, no hyphens. Uh, and our next, oh, I should have looked at this ahead of time. I was like so proud of myself. I'm like, I have this document up. Yeah. I am ready to go. And I don't have a calendar. <laughs> our next episode will be coming out uh, August 21st. And uh, it's going to be pretty great. So, uh, and now for an episode relevant audio drop. Listen to smoke before you give it a try. Only you. Don't play with matches. Don't play with fire. Fire. Cause there's nothing better funny about Rick Dodd's money. Nothing very nice. The homeless mind. So if a gorgeous force is what you desire, don't play with matches. Don't play with fire. Only you can prevent wildfires. Fire. Fire.